Welcome to the NPS MedicineWise podcast, helping health professionals stay up to date with the latest news and evidence about medicines and medical tests. Hello and welcome. I'm Dr. Caroline West. I'm a GP and I'm the new NPS MedicineWise medical advisor. Today's podcast is brought to you by NPS MedicineWise and the National Centre for Immunisation Research and Surveillance. Now, getting kids vaccinated for COVID is thought to be a community game changer. And in Australia, those over the age of 12 are now eligible for the Pfizer vaccine. The good news is that vaccine rates in general are nudging towards levels that will allow us to return to a new normal. Kids will be getting back to the classroom, seeing their friends again, and that will be a welcome relief. But for health professionals, there's still much to be done and many questions to be answered, especially from parents who may be hesitant. Just why is it important to vaccinate kids over 12? Is it safe? And how do we have conversations about all of this? Joining me on the program today is Professor Julie Lesk, who's at Sydney University's School of Nursing and Midwifery, and she's an expert in immunisation and an advisor to the World Health Organisation. Welcome, Julie. I know as a GP, there are still plenty of questions that we're all fielding out there about the COVID vaccine and the advice is constantly updated. Why in particular is it important to vaccinate kids from the age of 12 onwards? There are are a number of reasons that um, this is a good thing. I think by and large, uh, the risk for COVID among children is quite a bit lower than it is for adults. Uh, very few children will go to ICU um, and and even fewer will die from COVID. Uh, However, we know that having outbreaks of COVID in schools represents a significant disruption. We know also that there are some children with chronic diseases who are at greater risk of the severe effects of COVID if they get it and they need to be protected. And so there's both those direct and those indirect benefits of vaccinating the kids. And I think also on that more sort of social and psychological level, there is a lot of concern out there among parents that as we open up in Australia, in particular the states that have a lot of COVID, that kids will be vulnerable to getting COVID and that whatever the risk there, no matter how small, is an unacceptable risk because of the way we value children in society. And so I think that's a a relevant part of the whole notion of vaccinating children as well when they are at lower risk from COVID. Mm. And do you think that message is getting out there, that people understand that that sort of proposition in a way? Probably not so much. I think the nuance is often lost. and, And certainly we've seen some of the rhetoric around risk for children um, sort of descend into a bit of a debate where you have one camp saying the risk for kids is totally unacceptable and it's worse than people portray it and here look at this data whilst others are, are, are saying well overall it is low. Um, I think one thing that will happen is once we get quite a lot of COVID which we will even though it might mean less in terms of hospitalisation and death with more people vaccinated, if there is a lot of COVID circulating, then we will see COVID in children and even a small proportion of kids getting hospitalised, even if it's a large population of children getting COVID, 
will be less acceptable. So, you know, we've had actually very, very rapid take-up of the vaccine in Australia for the 12 to 15-year-olds in just a few weeks. And that is through the primary care system. It's not even through schools. So that is an incredible achievement when you think about how long it took to roll out the HPV vaccine, for example. Now, that doesn't mean that we'll easily reach 80%. There are always going to be these inequities in access to vaccination. But it's certainly a sign that there's a lot of motivation out there among parents to get the teenagers protected and also a lot of questions about when younger children will be able to have the vaccine as well. Mm, It's fantastic to see it rolling out so quickly in that age group. I guess, you know, I've worked a lot in the field as a GP and for the last 18 months have been very COVID focused working in uh, respiratory clinics and then actually rolling out the vaccine in remote areas. And one of the things that parents have talked to me about is this whole question of, well, how safe is the vaccine, given that Early in the process, it wasn't prioritised for younger people and they're sort of wondering, well, what is the situation here? What do you say to to those sorts of questions around discussing safety and risk? Yeah, certainly in our research, uh, particularly with parents who are hesitant about vaccines for their kids, other vaccines, you know, non-COVID vaccines, we found that leaning into that risk communication is a good thing. And often that's counterintuitive when someone's worried about risk, you want to reflexively reassure them and say, no need to worry, this is a low risk, I really want you to have your child to have this vaccine. But in fact, when people are quite hesitant, it can help them to have a discussion about what is known, acknowledge where there is limitations and uncertainty in the science, and then move on to a recommendation And that's about helping people cope with living with uncertainty and also living with trade-offs because the risks with this vaccine, um, with the Pfizer vaccine, uh, which is is licensed for children in Australia, are very small. So we're looking at uh, the usual sort of common side effects and systemic side effects. And then we're looking at the risk of myocarditis and pericarditis, which for the most part are um, mild are going to be mild conditions for children um, if caused by the vaccine um, and quite rare as well. But, yeah, as I said, you know, I, I certainly think that people understanding what the risk is, what the boundaries are, what the rate is and what to look out for is empowering information for those who think about risk but also it's important to pivot to that notion of vaccine benefit and what you stand to gain through getting your child vaccinated. But, you know, Caroline, as a GP, you're, you're living this, um, you're, you're walking this talk, so I'm curious to know what your experiences have been too. It's really important to be very inclusive in, in how you discuss risk and safety and certainly, as you say, pivot it back to being a story about the benefits um, and the old school way of just telling people to get vaccinated has certainly passed its use by date. I think that what I've observed is that parents in particular have got a range of information from lots of different sources. So they're trying to do their due diligence in a way and doing a bit of research by themselves, but they often arrive to see me with a bundle of very confused messages that they've received along the way. When I've been working in in lots of different parts of Australia, a lot of their their sort of local news and information will come via places platforms like Facebook, and it's it's often that they're having to sift through a lot of 
sometimes credible information backed up against stories that are very scary and misinformation. And off the back of that, there's been some hesitancy that's been generated. And so it's been a really tricky time. And I think a lot of GPs um, are actually quite fatigued with COVID messaging and you just think you're on top of it and the information changes. Changes, yeah. That's been a huge challenge, hasn't it? And, and you know, I'm curious to know as well uh, what you do when somebody does turn up with, I mean, clearly when they turn up to a clinic appointment, they're wrestling with the idea of vaccination. And certainly we, we know that with our research, that can be challenging for GPs who are, who are always time poor, but these conversations can take a long time. And that sense of, oh, this is going to blow my, my appointment times out and I've got a clinic full of people waiting, it must be quite difficult to manage that time limitation and also be effective with that conversation. What I've observed is that you need a lot of patience because you imagine often that it's just going to be one conversation that you're going to need with one person, but some people that are really wrestling with it might have multiple appointments around this. I had one person that came back three times for a sort of 25, 30 minutes each consultation, and that was what it took to sort of get them to that point where they were happy to to go ahead with vaccination. So I think that there, there's a big time factor in here, and I think that GPs like myself would be interested to hear from you about what are some of the tips that you'd have for effectively communicating and sort of using our time wisely and and being able to sort of have those difficult conversations um, without us burning out from just the sheer volume of, of repetition. Mm, yeah, so these are burning questions. So in I've been doing this kind of research for 24 years and a lot of the tips and and processes that we've put together are come from that clinical experience. So we're talking to GPs and nurses in particular about how they manage conversations. In, an, in a sense, we've tried to bottle the useful stuff. And what we've learned in also listening to conversations between hesitant parents and clinicians in our research is that agenda setting is quite important which is where you lay out the expectations about what's going to be covered in that conversation. So if someone signals somehow that they're very hesitant and unsure about having a vaccine, any vaccine, then asking them a few questions and eliciting their questions and concerns to saturation is more likely to be effective because you're more likely to cover all the things that they might have on their agenda and once you do that, and it can be re- relatively brief, it can be, you know, tell me what your questions are. Do you have some other questions? Do you have any more? You've said so far you've got this one and that one. Do you have any more? So that's the eliciting to saturation. And then just briefly signalling what the agenda is. So we're going to let's chat about it sounds like your biggest concern is about the mRNA, the spike protein. Let's focus on that. And we, if we have time, we'll get to your other two concerns. How does that sound? So you're asking that permission and collaboratively setting that agenda. And that enables you to pace out the conversation and know how much time to apportion to each part of it. Because if you get lost down a rabbit hole on one topic because you've reflective, reflexively um, addressed a question or a bit of wrong thinking to start with, 
then you can end up losing the things that actually might be more important to that parent or patient. And once the agenda settings happened, then uh, it's, you know, it's that communication 101, it's listening reflectively, acknowledging when people have sent out emotional cues because if they feel like their their emotions are acknowledged, it can be easier for them to then subsequently process what you have to say to them afterwards when you share your own knowledge and your answers to their questions. And using quality sources of information is important. And I know NCRS have some great resources uh, for um, providers that are sort of a one-stop shop with all the latest um, recommendations. And then finally, that that part of if someone's really hesitant and you know that they might be willing to consider vaccination, is to find out what might make them want to consider vaccination. And this is an element of motivational interviewing that GPs will be familiar with from smoking cessation counselling, for example, where you, you elicit um, the things that might make them feel that vaccination is important, like protecting their mother when they go to visit her or being able to travel or um, making sure their child is protected when they go to school and then amplifying that, so encouraging them in that motivation and agreeing with that and then coming in with a recommendation to vaccinate because no matter where somebody stands, we know that recommendations are powerful, they can influence people and we actually saw in some of those conversations that some of those parents who were terribly torn about vaccinating their child almost wanted the clinician to say, look, I really, I've heard your concerns. I know where you stand. You're clearly torn about this, but I'd love to see him vaccinated today. Would you be willing to do that? And the would you be willing is important because um, that seems to be quite a key term. And and what about using your own life story? Like um, I noticed that various um, public health officials, for example, have willingly um, talked about, you know, their kids or their partners being vaccinated along the way, which we didn't hear so much about before COVID came along. Is that a useful thing for somebody to, to leverage as well, the fact that their own family members or their own kids are being vaccinated? Is that a path you'd ever follow? It can be. It depends on the relationship and whether the clinician is comfortable sharing that information, and that will vary. If it does happen, it's there's studies to show that that's actually quite powerful, particularly with someone who's on the fence. Uh, so yeah, that's definitely an option for people to consider. I know for me, when I was you know doing a lot of public communication, when we had all the concerns about the AstraZeneca vaccine. Um, where Pfizer was preferred for the under 50s than under 60s and a lot of concerns about clotting. I, being um, in my early 50s, decided to be quite public about having the vaccine. And this was in, I think this was May or June. So it was at a time when, I think, no, it was actually late April. And this was just after they made the announcement. So It was a time when a lot of people were struggling with the idea of vaccinating if they were in their 50s and it was still, you know, you couldn't have Pfizer when you were in your 50s at the time. 
So I, that day, I opportunistically was able to get SBS film crew along to um, film my vaccination as well because they were doing another story. And that was great because I, I wanted to put my money where my mouth was. I wanted to show that I've looked at the risk, I've confronted it, I've got a plan if I know what to look out for with headaches and so forth. And I was going to take that risk for the huge benefit that I saw it having for me. Mm. Yeah, I was the same that when I had my vaccine, which I got AZ because I was at the beginning of the, the queue and that was all that was available regionally anyway, regardless of age. I was very excited about having the vaccine because I had worked for almost a, you know, a year in the front line by that stage and I felt so grateful that the vaccines had come along and they were potentially going to change the future for everyone and without the vaccines that we were in a terribly difficult place. So for me, when the vaccine arrived, I was extremely excited about it and I was excited about it when it rolled out for my children to have too. And I was happy to share my my feelings about that. And normally as medicos, you sort of keep all of that stuff to yourself. You know, you wouldn't sort of publicise that you've you've just had a certain procedure done or, or you're on a certain medication. Normally that's fairly private information. But I felt in this instance that it was important in some ways to be influencers maybe to sort of naff a word, but it, it sort of modelling, I guess, you know, that I was happy to have it. I was very happy for my kids to have it. And um, and I felt conveying that to some people was reassuring for certain people who were thinking, well, would you do this for your kids, you know? So it's a really interesting one, isn't it? Like COVID vaccination has really changed the conversations that we're having. And I think the other thing is that we've got to be really careful in these conversations not to stigmatise when somebody's pushing back because there will be people that have lots of reasons for for wanting to sort of know more or have hesitancy and we've got to be really careful not to alienate people as well because then they're lost completely what do you think about that that area of things yeah it's both a clinical problem and a societal problem as we head towards a time where non-vaccination is more unusual um you know it's and so the people who are holding out are um, quite a diverse bunch of people the needle phobic, the vaccine fearful, the mistrusting, people have had medical trauma. There's all sorts of reasons that people really hold out this much. And it is going to be a harsh environment for them, particularly in those early stages where they're unable to travel or move about as easily as the vaccinated, but also in a clinical setting where you've got, you know, it really is the pointy end of that, isn't it? Because for people who don't vaccinate, often that clinical encounter, particularly with a GP, will represent the place at which they see into that expert knowledge system. And if they're not vaccinating and, for example, they can't get a medical exemption from the doctor they're seeking it from, they can get quite upset, sometimes angry and even rarely abusive. So we are heading into very challenging times and it's not just challenging for the clinicians, it's also challenging for the people who don't vaccinate who are facing these kinds of pressures on them in their social and work lives. Mm, mm. So we've covered quite a bit of ground today, Julie. So I guess that what I heard loud and clear from a perspective of being a health professional in the field is that having, and correct me if I'm wrong here, but having some sort of agenda setting when, you, when you're when discussing a vaccination with somebody 
um, and covering what you're going to cover in that conversation. Is that right? Sort of at the beginning of the, the consult, just listen to their concerns and set a bit of a framework for how you're going to manage those concerns? Yeah, I think so. And, you know, just with that example of the medical exemption request, we've just, I've just been working with some colleagues around this, looking at, at how to ask, how to set that agenda and, 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 for example, saying what I'll do is ask a few questions to look at whether there are grounds for an exemption for you and I'll ask you a few standard questions to see if you qualify. And if I can't grant one, then can we look at your options and work out a way forward? So it's clear that there's a set criteria that the GP is working with and that they have a responsibility to abide by those rules, not just as a professional, but legally as well, they must. It's easier then to distance oneself from the need to implement the rules um, because the rules are external to that provider and then it's then easier to step into the way of relating that's more about how can I help you look at your options and consider what's best for you. I would like to see you vaccinate, but let's plan that together because unfortunately with these rules I can't give you that exemption. And that starts with that sort of de-escalation um, starts with that agenda setting it starts at the very beginning of the conversation and and hopefully if everyone continues this sort of I guess focus of listening to people encouraging those who are still unvaccinated to consider vaccination and hopefully more of them will get vaccination along the lines we'll move towards a um, a community where we're able to enjoy things again and and get back to some semblance of uh, of normal you know It'll be a very new normal, but it'll be um, good to to open up again. It's, it's been a really interesting conversation and and I know that there's so much more that we could cover and it's great to have your thoughts on all of this, Julie, and, and share your wisdom. And I guess it would also be great to send a, a big thank you to all of those healthcare workers out there who have been part of the COVID vaccine rollout. In my team in remote Australia, we had pharmacists and dietitians, nurses, doctors, everybody was getting involved at various levels. And I think it's the first time in medicine that I've ever seen that sort of collective effort um, applied to one particular situation. So it's been incredible to see people really step forward. So a big thank you. Did you have any final message that you'd like to share with our listeners, Julie, on what you feel is an important takeaway from all of this? Yeah, I... I echo your sentiments, Caroline, that there's a lot of people who have worked incredibly hard through from day one of this pandemic. And, you know, as a person in public health, I, I'm particularly grateful to those people who are often sort of hidden in those government departments who are working so hard to control COVID. And then, of course, the clinicians who are looking after people, managing their health services, doing that big sort of pivot towards managing COVID and also to the primary care providers. And as a, a former nurse myself, I have a particular shout out to all the registered nurses and midwives who have been part of the vaccination rollout. Some of them have 
been doing vaccination for a long time because we know that nurses and along with GPs are the cornerstone of vaccination in Australia. But others have, have jumped in, including some of our students at the University of Sydney's nursing school. So it's been wonderful to see the way that health professionals and public health people have come together and made this happen and also the, the way the public have really gotten on board and, and I've, we've seen so much solidarity um, around controlling COVID in Australia and that's quite inspiring. Yes, well, a, a big thank you, as you say, to, the, to those many nurses out there. I mean, they were really running most of the clinics that I was working at in terms of the vaccination rollout. So um, I was always in awe of how much they knew about vaccination. So I always uh, turned to them for, for extra advice, that's for sure. So thanks, Julie. And thank you to our listeners um, out there. If you'd like any more information on this story or you'd like suggestions for further reading, go to our website at nps.org.au. And I'm sure there'll be plenty more to discuss on the topic of kids and COVID, but that's all we have time for today. I look forward to you joining us next time. I'm Dr. Caroline West, and I've been joined with Professor Julie Lesk, and bye for now. For more information about the safe and wise use of medicines, visit the NPS MedicineWise website at nps.org.au.